Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Let us worship the Lord our God. is king. God is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. God is girded with strength. God has established the world. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. 
you are from everlasting. More majestic than the thunders of mighty waters, more majestic than the waves of the sea. Majestic on high is the Lord. As we pray, eternal God, you set Jesus Christ to rule over all things and made us servants in your kingdom. By your Spirit, we pray that you empower us to love the unloved and to minister to all in need. Then, at the last, bring us into your eternal realm where we may worship and adore you and be welcomed into your everlasting joy. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. downside of wearing a hearing aid is this almost takes it off every time I try to take my mask off. Grace and peace to you from the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia and welcome to our service of worship. Both those of us gathered here in the sanctuary and everyone worshiping in other locations, we are indeed glad and grateful to gather in the name of the Lord and it is in that way that we greet one another. And because we do indeed greet one another in the name of the Lord, that means our word of welcome is one that has no adjectives whatsoever attached to it. All are welcome in Christ's house, and all are welcome here. We would ask everyone who wishes to join us for a time of fellowship at the conclusion of this service in our Old Buttonwood Hall, which is just out this door to my right and down a short ramp. There you will find some refreshments and the opportunity for us to speak to one another more directly than we can when we are in worship. I'd like to highlight a few things from the announcements portion of your bulletin for your particular attention in the weeks to come. The first is to know that today is Commitment Sunday for our annual giving campaign for 2022. And during the offertory, following the offertory, there will be a time when you may bring your pledges forward to the basket in the front if you wish. If you're not comfortable doing that, you may certainly do it afterwards or you may pledge online in whatever way you wish to do so. There's instructions about that in the bulletin. We begin, uh, we will be having a new members class sometime in the yet-to-be-determined future, and the reason I say yet-to-be-determined future is we want to schedule it when the most people can come. So if you are interested in uniting with us in ministry here at First Church, whether you've worshipped with us for a short time or a long time, we would be delighted to welcome you. Just send me an email so I can make sure to include you on the invitation list for that. With these things noted, we have now a Minute for Education brought by Elder Carol Cook. Good morning. I'll be reading the introduction to the Advent class series, which will be led by Barbara Chapel, and she has prepared these words. Next Sunday, the church begins the season of Advent, a season that both remembers in expectation Christ's birth in a Bethlehem manger and anticipates his second coming to judge the world. It is a season of preparation, of waiting, of hope. It is a season of longing. For five Wednesday evenings in Advent, beginning this Wednesday, November 24th, 
and continuing through December 22nd. Parish Associate, the Reverend Barbara Chapel, will lead an online class on Longing for God, reflecting on the scripture texts of Advent and introducing spiritual poetry from Christian and interfaith traditions. The class will meet from 5 to 6 p.m. on Zoom. If you feel a yearning in your own heart to know God more closely, or a yearning for the coming of God's kingdom of justice and love in the world, you are invited to join with other members and friends to explore our longing. This week, we will celebrate Thanksgiving, and one gift we can be grateful for at First Church is the gift of one another, opportunities to know each other's hearts and hopes, to share learning and community, and to pray for each other. We hope many of you will choose to share this time together in Advent as a gift to each other and to God. Please register on the website or by calling the church office to receive the Zoom link for the class. Thank you. As we prepare our hearts and minds to receive God's word, let us pray together honestly and humbly, confessing our sins, first aloud and then in the silence of our hearts. O oh God, we know that Christ is King, but so often we place our trust elsewhere. We trust in military might, we trust in financial stability, we trust even in the church, but our trust is misplaced. It is Christ alone in whom we should trust, and so we come in penitence to declare that we need forgiveness. Turn our hearts to Christ, O God, that we may worship aright and trust in hope, the one who has loved us, even unto death. In the name of Jesus, we pray. With the coming of Christ, God has given us the gift of forgiveness. He continually is reaching out to offer us new life, new life in Christ. Believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
Our first reading this morning is from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father. To him be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This ends our first lesson. Our second lesson is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 18, verses 33 through 37. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. This ends our second lesson. The third lesson is taken from 2 Samuel, 23rd chapter, beginning at the first verse and continuing through the seventh. Continue to listen for the word of God to us this day. <clears throat> Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man whom God exalted, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the favorite of the strong one of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks through me, his word is upon my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, one who rules over people justly, ruling in the fear of God, is like the light of the morning, like the sun rising on a cloudless morning, gleaming from the rain on a grassy land. Is not my house like this with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. Will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But the godless are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be picked up with the hand. 
To touch them, one uses an iron bar, the shaft of a spear, and they are entirely consumed in fire on the spot. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. There is a phrase in the church associated particularly with this Sunday. It is Christus vincit, Christus regnat, Christus Imperat, and it sounds as imposing in English as it does in Latin, Christ overpowers, Christ reigns, Christ commands, all of which points us to this particular feast day of the church, Christ the King Sunday, or Reign of Christ as it is also called. What does it mean? to say that Christ is king? And perhaps more importantly, where is the evidence that Christ does indeed reign? A language is a little bit of an obstacle here. We don't have kings. Our modern political context renders the liturgical significance of this Sunday almost entirely irrelevant. It just doesn't have the same kick to say Christ the Government Sunday, although that probably captures most accurately what the early church would have meant when they uttered the phrase. So, today, let's have a reconsideration of language. Let's start with what a biblical understanding of kingship is. Then, let's consider how the early church would have understood it as well. Finally, let's think about what it might mean for us. To understand kingship from the biblical perspective is immediately to start with King David. David's kingship represents for Israel the high-water mark of its influence, its power, its prestige, and its faithfulness. It was David who united the northern and southern kingdoms under one throne. It was David who was victorious against the mighty Philistines, It was David who brought the Ark of the Covenant home to Jerusalem. But in spite of all of these things, it is David's faithfulness to God that makes him great. David is called in Scripture a man after God's own heart. 
But if you read your Bible, you know that David is far from perfect. He initiated a tragic affair with Bathsheba and subsequently murdered her husband. And then his familiar relations devolved to something much like a train wreck. Yet despite his terrible failings, he knew his sin and he knew his place before God, which was a place of penitence and humility. So God saw David as faithful. And God made with David an everlasting covenant that an heir from his house would forever sit on the throne of Israel. To understand kingship from a biblical perspective is to understand it looking through the lens of David. Flawed, broken, victorious, and mighty, but above all, faithful. Which is important because the subsequent kings were not faithful. There was, of course, Solomon, who was wise and wealthy, who rules because of David's faithfulness over a united kingdom. But his sin is manifold. So God decrees that Israel will be conquered under Solomon's heirs, and that's exactly what happens. The kingdom is first divided, then it is weakened, and ultimately both the northern and the southern kingdoms are defeated, and the people of God are dragged off into enslavement. And in their exile... It is Jerusalem they mourn, and it is David whom they recall. It's in this period that the pining for a Messiah begins. Now, the term Messiah is actually a bit of a catch-all phrase. It just refers to the practice of anointing with oil a king in order to show that God's favor was with them. It means something a little different in its original context than it meant in the first century and perhaps even than it means now. But it is the pining for a Messiah of God's people that brings us to our next snapshot of what it means to be a king. By the first century, by the time of Jesus, Israel is once again an occupied country. They are paying taxes to support a country mightier than they. Under Roman occupation, Israel enjoyed an uneasy, costly peace, and some thought too costly. So religious zealots preached that the Jews were losing their national identity with the Roman occupation. Their right to self-determination was taken away. They lived under the rule of someone they saw as a half-breed Jew, Herod, who was also cruel and temperamental, and they began looking again for a Messiah, for an anointed one who would lead them out of suffering and restore them to the prestige, the power, and the security that they had once, under, under, they had once enjoyed under the now mythical King David. So there were numerous pretenders to the throne of David at the time of Jesus, upstarts calling themselves Messiahs who galvanized the people and led tiny little revolts which were generally quickly put down by the all-dominating Romans. And then, of course, we come to Jesus, the actual Messiah, who didn't act like one, but we'll get to that in a moment. Then, as we consider our progression of what the early church considered about kingship, we begin to turn away from a backward-looking understanding, a backward-looking remembrance of King David, and we start to turn more toward an eschatological understanding of a coming kingdom of God. 
After the diaspora of the Jews, when Christianity became more than a sect of Judaism, there began to emerge this radical claim that God raised Jesus from the dead. It is not radical because it flaunts the scientific convention that dead people don't come back to life. It is radical because it flaunts the political conviction that the Romans controlled life and death. In the celebration of the Eucharistic feast, the early church said defiantly, Rome, you do not control whether we live or die because you have only the power of death. No, your control is finite. God's control is eternal. And so it is to God whom we must give our trust. A powerful proclamation. But I wonder if that felt like whistling in the wind to the early martyrs who were thrown to the lions. But then the church's understanding shifts yet again. Because when Christianity became the state religion of Rome, the private faith of the persecuted Christians came out of the catacombs and became the public faith of the emperor. A consummate politician, Constantine, used the church to stabilize his government. Religious ritual became state celebration. That's when churches started having processions and inhabiting basilicas and when bishops began to wear vestments that made them look like kings themselves. In the Middle Ages, when the Roman Empire's military might began to decline, the emperors again turned to the church to prop up their sagging empire as it became the Holy Roman Empire. All of which is to say, we don't come to a term like king without importing a lot of baggage. Three to four thousand years worth of baggage, to be sure. Now it is theologically true, and biblically true, that Christ is king. But what does that mean? What kind of king is he? And, perhaps more to the point, what is the evidence that Christ reigns? The Apostle Paul tells us that he is the king through whom God Almighty has reconciled all things to God's self, making peace out of violence, bringing redemption out of even an execution on the cross. If we want to exhibit evidence that Christ reigns, it won't be evidence that looked like any of these images of kingship that we have listed today. It won't be a mighty victor like David. It won't be an oily despot like Herod. It won't be a wily politician like Constantine. When we say that Christ reigns, we mean something altogether different. So the evidence is altogether different. Christus vincit, Christus regnat, Christus imperat. Indeed, Christ does conquer, Christ does reign, and Christ does command, but not perhaps in the ways we might expect.
And I think we say it so often, it's such a, a commonplace of the church that occasionally we risk losing the importance of this. But Christ is a crucified king. God's anointed hanging from a tree. That's sort of the opposite of almost every image of a monarch we may consider. In Jesus Christ, an executed Messiah, we are freed from our sin and empowered and allowed to be all that we were created to be. And that God has told us that in Christ Jesus, we are reconciled to God and made agents of that reconciliation. Christ reigns because God says that Christ reigns. So what does that mean? In a classic understanding, the monarch is the one who is responsible for the well-being of the subjects. They care for and seek the best for those whom they rule. And in this sense, Jesus Christ is king. Christ does reign because we know that we may bring our troubles to him. And Christ does reign because God's grace is sufficient to carry us through. But don't let us confuse the matter. Christ is not king because we say he is, but rather because God says that he is. And because God says that Christ reigns, that means that Christ is king in God's way. So the Christ who reigns, reigns justly. And Christ the king is a good king. And because Christ is king God's way, we can take comfort in the notion that Christ reigns. We may take comfort that our, our monarch knows our suffering, having suffered alongside us and for us. We can take comfort that he reigns knowing our fears, having been afraid himself. And we can take comfort knowing that Christ reigns knowing our loves, having loved himself. Yes, Christ reigns, and it is a very different type of kingdom than, early go than earthly government. Because Christ overpowers, but in love. And Christ reigns, but in peace. And Christ commands, but with justice. And because it is Christ who reigns, we are not bound by his rule, but rather freed. Freed from fear, freed from anxiety, freed to love. That brings us back again to our question. What is the evidence that Christ reigns? Where's the proof I would say that it's here, not in this physical structure, but in this body of which Christ is the head. That's the evidence that Christ reigns. And so that looks very different from other evidence of governance. Because Christ is king, we share one another's joys and bear one another's burdens. And I, I want to ask you, do you know that this church 
shares your burdens, even if you don't share them with us? Do you know that this church shares your joys, even if we don't know them? That's how fully God binds us to one another in God's love. Christ is king, and that's what makes this a church and not just another worthwhile civic organization. Christ reigns, and that is why we keep coming back here, in order that we might be witnesses, even that we might be evidence to the world of the love of Christ. My friend Nora Tubbs Tisdale tells a couple of stories that illustrate, I think, quite well what it is we proclaim when we come to this place. In a sermon she preached in the early 2000s, Nora tells the story of a woman named Pam, who was a member of her husband's congregation in Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Pam's husband died, leaving her with young children just a few days before Christmas. And on Christmas Eve, Nora said it surprised her to look up into the choir loft and see there, singing among the choir members, Pam, singing her heart out. And at coffee hour, Nora came up behind her and put her arms around her and said, how glad, but how surprised she had been to see Pam singing. And Nora says, Pam replied, I had to sing. I couldn't not sing. Not this year. That's evidence. Nora told another story, this time about a classmate of mine, Esther Wediasi. Esther was a member of the touring choir that I managed in Princeton, and I knew her quite well. She was a visiting student when I was in seminary and a very gifted musician. Esther came from Indonesia. Nora ran into her at a conference on worship in the two-thirds world that was being held in Geneva several years later. When they went for coffee at a cafe, Esther proceeded to tell Nora about Christmas Day in Jakarta, where churches were being bombed and Christians were required to identify themselves with ID cards. Word went out among the Christians in Jakarta that they should not try to go to church on Christmas Day. But Esther said, I had to go to church. I had a choir to lead. And Dr. Tisdale, I cannot tell you how good it was to gather in worship. That's the evidence. In a world where a pandemic continues to dominate our lives, in a world where justice seems at times to be in woefully short supply, in a world where cancer still ravages the body and addictions still ravage the mind, in a world where brokenness seems too often to be the order of the day, the good news of the gospel comes as both proclamation and as calling. Christ is King, and God says that we are to be the evidence of this. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
please continue to stand as we confess our faith. Let us say together in the words of the Apostles' Creed what it is that we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. As we approach the holiday, Thanksgiving, set aside for thanking God for his bountiful goodness, this morning we are also taking time to pledge our support for our congregation, the First Presbyterian Church here in Philadelphia. During the offertory anthem, those of you here in the sanctuary may demonstrate that support by walking forward and dropping your 2022 pledges in the basket in the front of the church, as well as your offering. If you prefer, you may do that at the end of the service. If you forgot your uh, pledge cards, there are extra cards in the pew racks for your use. For those of you worshiping with us in other locations, I would ask that you please forward your pledges to the church office. Thank you.
Let us join together in prayer, dedicating our pledges. Holy God, we know that the earth is yours and the fullness thereof. From the abundance of creation, we have all that we need. You have called us into being as a congregation and given us to one another and to the world as evidence of the reign of Christ. Everything we are, God has made us. Everything we have, God has given us. So we offer now our lives in Christ's service, pledging our commitment for the year to come. Through Christ our King we pray. Amen. Let us pray. Sovereign God, all of life, all abundance belongs to you, and freely you share it with us. From all for which we give thanks, we return this portion to you, and it is our prayer that it will grow and multiply in goodness, serving your world. As we will gather in gratitude this week, we know there are places in this world where an extra measure of your grace is needed. So hear our prayers. We pray for the whole of creation. We are ever mindful that we need to change our ways. We pray that you will guide the leaders of every nation that our countries may work together for our common good, for our own health, and for the safety and security of those most threatened by changing climate. Give our leaders wisdom and fortitude to lead us in the right way. We pray for our own nation. Holy God, we struggle with division. We seem divided between rural and urban, cities and farmland. We fail to see common cause. We treat our neighbors as ill-intentioned rather than of a different mind. And sometimes... The call of justice seems a call not answered. Heal our divisions. Remind us that you call us to be agents of reconciliation in the world, that that is how we give evidence of your enduring reign. We pray for our city as cold weather closes in and our hearts burn bright and merry Remind us of those in our midst who are not so fortunate and warm our hearts to those in need. Show us the ways that we might help that are tangible and immediate. And when we have seen them, guide us to follow through. To that end, we pray once more for the church. We pray for your church in all the earth, and we pray for this expression of the body of Christ 
the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Holy God, we know all of the things that we have prayed. Grant that this body might be a source of strength and renewal, of hope and grace. These and all of our prayers we make in the name of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever, and who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
Teresa of Avila says that Christ has no body now on earth, but ours. So if there is to be evidence of the reign of Christ in this world, it must begin with us. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.